Good morning. So glad we could share this day together, open God's Word, and encourage one another in the gospel and in the glory of God. As we uh, continue this morning, would you stand with me? And we are going to read a psalm together in our beginning of our study this morning of our continuing series in the humanity of Christ. It's a glorious time of year to continue to rejoice in the truths of the gospel. And uh, I want to introduce this next message in the series called The Experience of Christ's Humanity by this particular psalm. Would you read the first seven words with me together in unison and read them with your heart? Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather together as Your people around Your Word, we pray that the glory of Jesus Christ would be presented before our eyes from the Scriptures. That we would delight in Him. That we would be changed to worship Him more purely. That You would sanctify us. That You would help us to love Him more devotedly. Trust Him more completely follow Him more faithfully, and bring Him glory. Father, we want to see Your glory. We want to see Christ. We want to look back at the incarnation and see the great work that You have done, the salvation that You have wrought, the glorious rest that we have for our souls in the person of Christ, the the anchor that we have that is unwavering and ever faithful. We, would, we pray that you would show us Christ this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The reason why I brought this psalm to our attention as an introduction this morning is because it is the habit of the people of God to look back in redemptive history and say to one another, especially from one generation to the next, look at what God has done. This is what the children of Israel would do when, even when they were being crushed in great trials. They would look back and say, remember, God delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians and He brought us through the Red Sea. He kept us safe from Pharaoh and and so on, all the way through the, the history of Israel. And you know, we can look back this morning together and specifically what I want us to look at together is what God has done for His people in becoming man. The eternal Son becoming man. 
And we've been looking at what impact that brings to our lives for our salvation. And I love verse 7, verse 6 and 7, this text. Let's do this together this morning. Let's remember and think and consider the, the humanity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, so that, and tell it to the next generation so that they might know and arise and tell it to their children so that they would what? Set their hope in God. That's what I want for us this morning. We would see the person and work of Jesus Christ and set our hope in Him, maybe in some fresh ways and new ways that we haven't yet as the people of God. I hope that the Lord will do this work in our hearts. And so the main idea of this series all the way through as we've considered the humanity of Christ is let your understanding of Christ's humanity lead you to worship Him by your trust, by your love, your obedience, and your praise. This morning we're going to look at several texts and consider the humanity of Christ. Number one in your outline, um, it was a real humanity. You know, we, we, like we said last week, we spend lots of time defending the deity of Christ, and rightly so. But also, have you considered that the God of heaven, the, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on real humanity? We looked last week at the beginning of Christ's humanity, the virgin birth. This week, let's look at the experience of Christ's humanity. Number one, it was a real experience. How do we know from Scripture... That the Son of God, the, the man Christ Jesus, truly took on human nature. Last week I asked you the question, can you from Scripture defend the virgin birth of Christ? One of those foundational, irreducible, essential truths of Christianity. Can you defend that to someone from Scripture? Now, can you defend the real humanity of Christ? These are, again, truths that are essential to Christian faith and doctrine. The Word of God, particularly the Gospel accounts of His incarnation, speak of Him in terms that can only describe real humanity, real human existence. As the Bible explains the one person of Christ, it accurately uses words that are fitting of either His true divine nature or His true human nature, or both natures at the same time. But sometimes, the Bible uses words to explain Christ, the one person of Christ, that are not fitting of His divine nature at that specific point. And it causes, in that case, it's speaking of Him as truly a man. Truly a man. Other times, the Bible uses words to explain the one person of Christ that are not fitting of His human nature. In that case, it is speaking of Him as truly God. So as we speak of Christ in His humanity, in His incarnation, we may rightly speak of Him as a human being, or speak of Him as God, and rightly say those things about the one person Christ, who is both God and man. But there are some things that we can say about His human nature that we can't rightly or accurately say about His divine nature. 
And there are some things that we can say about his divine nature that we cannot accurately say about his human nature. And so as we seek to be and as we seek to be careful not to attribute to one nature something that is only true about the other nature, we must at the same time seek not to speak of Christ as if he is two persons, for he's not. Or as if he has one nature that is a mixture of both divinity and humanity. If there is one other thing about God that is just as difficult to speak about as his being a trinity, it would be this very topic that we're talking about. Three persons, yet one God. It would be also this truth about the Son, that He is two complete, inseparable, yet distinct natures, but is only one person, one Savior. So again, we must be very careful as we speak of the one person of Christ and His two natures. We must become careful students of Scripture and bind our thoughts and our words and our consciences to the divine words of God and logic of Scripture. Let me give you, just to, to, to kind of show you what the church has done in, in days gone by to try to articulate these truths that Christ is one person, yet two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Let me show you this is uh, the Athanasian Creed, a little piece of the Athanasian Creed from the 4th century A.D. This is what he wrote. Watch carefully. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is what? God and man. God of the substance of the Father. Begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul and a human flesh subsisting. Equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One person, right? One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by the assumption of manhood into God. In other words, God took on human nature. He didn't abandon His divinity to become a man. He took on, added to His divinity, human nature. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. The people of God have labored to study the Scriptures, to speak as careful as we can about the person of God. So, we understand even from what we've said so far, the statement that God is The Son is also man. But how do we know that from Scripture then? Can we defend it? Well, let's look at this. Several texts this morning. And then we'll come finally to some application that I hope will be a great blessing to you. Letter A under number one, the real experience of Christ's humanity. He had a real human body. He had a real human body. God the Son took on a real human body. First of all, we see from Hebrews 10, 5-7, which is quoting Psalm 40, verses 6-8, through that the Father prepared a body for Christ. 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not taken, or you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. God the Father prepared a body for the Son, the person of Christ. How else do we know? He was born. He had a human birth. Luke 2.7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Jesus experienced real human growth. And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We're certainly going to be affirming throughout this this session that Jesus experienced real humanity except without sin. But that doesn't mean He didn't grow. He grew in His understanding. He grew in His stature. He grew in His strength. Everything He did, He did in a way that pleased His Father without sin. But He experienced everything of the real human life except for sin. He actually became weary and exhausted. That's not something you can say about God, right? So when we speak of words like this, we're not referring to His divine nature. We're referring to His real human nature. Jacob's well was there, John 4, 6. So Jesus, wearied as He was from His journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus knew what it was like to become weary and exhausted. He became thirsty. John 10, 28, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished. Actually, this is 19, John 19, 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. He knew real human thirst. Human hunger, Matthew 4, 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He knew human weakness, Luke 23, 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Jesus, after all of the suffering he had experienced up to this point, needed someone else to carry his cross for him. He experienced human sleep. Matthew 8.24, Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Human suffering. Matthew 16.21, this is a summary statement. We know so much suffering our Lord experienced throughout his human life. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He experienced human death. That's something, again, we cannot say of his divine nature. God does not die. But the Son of God as a man truly died in his human nature. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last Human resurrection, he was literally raised from the dead as a human. Luke 24, 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for I 
For a spirit does not have flesh and bones like you see I have. A real human body with real human hands and feet and flesh and bones. He was raised as a man. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus experienced real humanity. It was a real experience. He had a real human body, but he also had real human mind or spirit or soul, his immaterial part. Notice, he increased in wisdom, as we said earlier. Jesus learned. He grew in his wisdom. He was also, as a man, limited in his knowledge. Mark 13.32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, but not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. What does that mean? Well, again, this is an example of Jesus Christ, the Son, not giving up His deity, but allowing the exercise of His deity to be suspended, if you will, and only used when his father wanted him to. But here as a man, he was, he, was, he was voluntarily suspending the independent use of his omniscience, if you will. And so here he was limited in his knowledge. This is part of his learning as a man, as a real man. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Here's the idea. This is not that Jesus would obey most of the time and then fail and then learn to obey. No, he never failed in his obedience. He never sinned. He never did anything that displeased the Father. But what the Father did do for the Son is bring him along in his experience of suffering and trial and testing. And every time the Father added more weight to that suffering and testing ultimately until he came to the cross, how did Jesus perform? Perfectly. But he learned what it meant to endure suffering and sustain the weight of the Father's will, however costly it was. He learned obedience through what he suffered. He was troubled. John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. And of course, Jesus was speaking about his cross. And even as he was looking at his cross in the future, he was troubled. He felt human sorrow. Taking with him Peter and his two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Think of that kind of sorrow, sorrowful to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus marveled. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus wept. Jesus felt anger. Sinlessly, but he felt anger. Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, and he was Here's the idea of anger, deeply moved in his spirit. This is from John 11, when the people approached him uh, with great unbelief. 
when Lazarus was in the tomb. And they refused to believe that he was going to exercise his glory and raise Lazarus from the dead. And so they continued to throw her, their unbelief at him, and, and that angered him. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus cried loudly with tears. Again, as he was coming to the cross and, 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 and anticipating what the cross would hold for him, which we'll talk about shortly. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, right? that's his real humanity, Jesus offered up prayers. He prayed. He begged his Father. And in his intensity of that prayer and supplication, it was with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. I can't begin to comprehend the kind of personal internal agony that Jesus experienced in anticipating the cross in his humanity that so provoked him that he cried out loudly to his father, in tears, anticipating what that would be. That's Jesus in His humanity. Experiencing the greatest weight of, of suffering up to that point that He had experienced. In this text and also others, we see that Jesus uh, prayed. I, I, I forgot to put this one down, I guess, but Hebrews 5, 7 also talks about this, that Jesus prayed in His humanity, depended upon His Father. So we can see here that Jesus, from Scripture, had a real human experience with a real human body and real human mind and spirit and soul. Jesus the Christ is truly human. Human in the full sense of what it means to be human, except for one aspect. And what is that? Sin. Number two this morning in your outline, it was a sinless experience. Let me show you this from Scripture. I want you to know that while Jesus was perfectly human, his, and this is very important for our salvation, that His human experience was a sinless experience. Oh, okay, here we go. First of all, Jesus was sinless in his behavior. John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's a statement of sinless behavior right there. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 1 Peter 2, 22. He, speaking of Jesus, committed what? No sin. No sin. And committed, obviously, is speaking of his actions, his thoughts, his words. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin. But not only Jesus was sinless in behavior, we take it deeper. The Scriptures call us to. He was sinless in his nature. He had a real human nature, but that real human nature was not tainted by the guilt or the, or the fallen, the sinfulness of Adam was not inherited by Jesus. He was sinless in nature. Luke one thirty five. Thus the Lord has done for me what, what the days, and He looked upon me to take away my... I'm sorry, that's the wrong verse. 
What I meant to, what I meant to have there, oh, that's verse 25. What we're looking for is Luke 1.35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called what? Holy. Holy. Jesus was not just sinless in action. He was sinless in nature. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who what? The one who the Father made to be sin for us on the cross was a person that you could describe by those four words. He knew no sin. Not in nature, not in behavior. He was sinless in His humanity. Hebrews 7.26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And how do they describe this high priest? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's our Lord in His humanity. Sinless. He's sinless in nature. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb. And how is this lamb of God described? Without blemish or spot. 1 John 3, 5, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and what? In Him there is no sin. You have a real humanity and a sinless humanity in Christ. Now, I want to look at one more thing before we begin to, well, and this is a, a bit of a lengthy section, but he was sinless in temptation. Even though Christ was tempted, he remained sinless. Tempted as a human being, and we're going to talk about this because I want you to be convinced this morning that Jesus, the temptations that he experienced were real temptations. And I'll give you some some questions that may stir your thoughts about that for just a moment. Look at at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When he was tempted by the devil there, Luke 4, 1-15, follow with me. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will, be all, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone, or him only, shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Let me just point out a few things here. Jesus experienced real temptation from the evil one. Jesus experienced the temptation to seek the satisfaction of God's gifts like food, for example, in Jesus' case, but in a way that disobeyed God's will. Satan tempted Jesus to seek the fulfillment of God's promises, specifically the kingdoms of the world would be His as a man, the Lord of all. But He tempted Him to seek that fulfillment in a way that disregarded God's timing. Satan tempted Jesus to seek the experiences of power like miracles, casting Himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, but in a way that dishonored God's glory and tested God. There's a lot we could say about this, but that's not specifically the point that I want to go to. What I want you to see is that these are real temptations. These are the same kinds of temptations that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden and that we experience even today. We could call them, we could speak of them in the words of the Apostle John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. The temptations Satan is classic to use. These are the classic temptations that Satan brings to human beings. And Jesus resisted them all perfectly in the power of the Spirit, as you see repeated the beginning and the end of this text. There was also a temptation that I want to draw your attention to at the end of Jesus' ministry, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine to 46 And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter to temptation. we, we, We get the context again. Jesus is telling his disciples, be in prayer so that you may not enter into temptation. You might be given into this temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, here is at the end of Jesus' ministry another tremendous temptation. Jesus' temptation here was to receive the crown of glory, the kingdoms of the world as King of kings and Lord of lords, but without the cross of suffering. Before he would be given the name Lord, Philippians 2, for example, 
as the man, Christ Jesus, the Father's will for Him was to be obedient unto death. Even what? Death on a cross. This was the Father's will. But think about this. In Jesus, in Christ's sinless humanity, the experience of extreme pain, of extreme suffering, and even death, the consequences of sin, was repulsive. But even more, even more, much more, infinitely more than than that, Jesus' sinless human nature groaned at the prospect of experiencing human guilt upon Himself. He was the sinless one. And for us, He became sin. What a horrible experience. And beyond that, experiencing the torture of divine rejection and wrath in our place. Could you imagine? The sinless Son of God, the human man Christ Jesus, knew the guilt of sinners and then the Father's wrath for that sin justly poured out as, would, as we would deserve forever. And He experienced it on the cross. Jesus knew it was coming. The Word of God revealed it to Him. His Father revealed it to Him. And He saw it. And yet Jesus, knowing the Father's will for Him, resisted the temptation to avoid this agony and embraced it willingly for the salvation of His people and for the glory of His Father. None of these moments in the human life of Christ, beloved, were merely show. They were not lightened temptation. They were not easy. But He passed all the tests and fulfilled all righteousness by resisting these temptations perfectly as a man, as a human being. And Hebrews 4.15 explains at least part of the reason why the Father planned for Jesus to endure these temptations. And we'll talk more about this in just a moment. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect was tempted, has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Wow. Now, before we seek to bring the real and sinless experience of the humanity of Christ to some points of application for us today, there's two more questions that I want to set before you. And I hope they will help us to prepare us even more for the application. But also, they they have to do with his sinless human experience. Let me ask you this question. Do you know certainly that Jesus did experience real temptation? Just as real as the temptation you and I experience. Let me tell you why that can be a problem for some. James 1, 13-15 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For what? God cannot be tempted with evil. Well, I thought Jesus was God. And if he's God, then how can he be tempted with evil? And so, I don't understand how the the temptations that Christ experienced were real then. 
Again, this is part of the answer of understanding Christ's humanity. Yes, the temptations he experienced were real because while the divine nature of Christ was not being tempted, what? The human nature of Christ was being tempted. Well, but since Jesus doesn't have a sinful nature with internal sinful desires like we have, doesn't that mean his temptations were not exactly like ours and therefore not as difficult to resist uh, as our temptations are? Let me, let me show you what I mean from this text. Look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is what? Lured and enticed by his own desires, these internal desires. And then when those desires conceive, they give birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Well, Jesus didn't have those internal lurings, enticings. Why? Because he didn't have a, a sinful human nature. Do you follow me? Well, then he, he didn't have that magnetic draw on the inside like we do to say, wow, Satan, that temptation looks great. I think it'll satisfy me. I'm in. Well, then that means he didn't have the other half and maybe the most powerful half of the temptations that we experience. No. And I'm going to go against that as well because Jesus' temptations were just as real as ours and I would say even more difficult than ours are. And here's why. Even though Jesus did not have a sinful nature with internal sinful desires that would draw Him to give in to temptation like we do, He experienced the same kinds of real temptation from Satan externally and, follow me here, because Jesus resisted that Satan's pressure to sin to a much greater degree than we do, I believe the magnitude or power of the temptations which Jesus experienced from Satan were also of much greater magnitude than what we have experienced even with our internal desires included. Does that make sense? Jesus resisted far more than we could ever resist, and so Satan pushed back all that much harder on him and you notice, remember what it said in Luke 5 when Satan had finished every temptation. Satan gave Jesus all he had and he still remained sinless. Can you imagine the pressure of temptation that Jesus experienced in those moments of darkness and weakness and hunger? Unbelievable. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted yet without sin. One more question before we come to some application. Was it possible for Jesus to sin? Could the human nature of Christ, was it possible for him to sin? And the answer is no. It was not possible for Jesus to sin, and follow this with me a little bit. I want, I'm trying to eliminate some of these, these questions that might come up in your mind. We call this the impeccability of Christ. Jesus could not sin. Well, why couldn't Jesus sin? Jesus couldn't sin for at least a couple of reasons. One, the Father's decree, His eternal decree, rendered the person of Christ unable to sin. Meaning this, the plan of redemption was an eternal decree of the Trinity, right? Eternal. Before time, space, anything was created, God planned salvation from beginning to end. And it's not contingent. 
upon anything. So that means since the eternal decree of God's plan of salvation was unchanging, that would, that would, that would not allow Jesus to fail as the figurehead of that plan of redemption. Does that make sense? And if you want to see that picture of the, of the eternal, unchanging purposes of God and salvation, it's in the book of Ephesians so clearly. But there's another reason. The divine nature of Christ rendered the whole person of Christ unable to sin. Remember, while we cannot mix His natures, we cannot separate them, if God cannot sin, then Christ cannot sin. Well then, wait a minute. Maybe His temptations weren't as real as we thought they were. No. Since it's impossible for Jesus to sin, doesn't that make His temptations a sort of going through the motions? No. Jesus' temptations were still just as real as ours and in reality far more powerful and forceful just as we have said. Consider this. Follow my thought carefully, please. There's a difference between the reasons Christ could not sin and the reason He did not sin. I want to make that a distinction. There are reasons He could not sin. His Father's decree, His divine nature... But the reasons he did not sin, what were those? What were the reasons he did not sin? The reason that the human nature of Christ and therefore the person of Christ never sinned while physically on the earth and when he was tempted was because, listen, of his perfect and total dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit as a real man. This is really something to consider. So much to think through. That's why Jesus was sinless. This makes Christ's experience of resisting temptation as a human as real as it could possibly be. The only reason any human being resists temptation in in our lives is because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was perfectly dependent upon and submissive to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why you see Jesus disciplined in prayer devoted to the Scriptures privately and publicly. Let me illustrate it for you. This illustration of why the human nature of Christ did not sin comes from a book called The Man Christ Jesus. I would commend it to you, The Man Christ Jesus. It's written by Bruce Ware. He illustrates it like this. Think of a a person who's a swimmer training to swim across the English Channel. He gradually increases his ability to swim longer distances without ever failing one time. Finally, he swims the channel. During his training and his final swim, he always swam with a rescue boat right next to him. But never once did he reach out his hand to hold on to the boat to avoid drowning. Every time he trained and was tested, he exercised the power to swim well without ever using the rescue boat. That's a little bit what small illustration of what it could be like with the person of Christ. Though Christ's divine nature and his Father's decree explain why he couldn't fail, like the rescue boat, he didn't fail, he didn't sin because his human nature endured every single one of Satan's most powerful temptations by perfect dependence 
upon the power of the Holy Spirit within him. He trained perfectly in obedience as a man and overcame every temptation as a real man. His human nature being filled with the Holy Spirit, power of the Holy Spirit was able to experience the greatest temptations that Satan could deliver and overcome them sinlessly. Do you understand the point? There are several texts that describes Jesus' dependence upon the Holy Spirit is filling. For example, John 3, 34 34-35, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Christ had the fullness of the Spirit of God. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And again, we saw Luke 4, 1-15, led by the Spirit in the power of the Spirit. Isaiah 11, 2 and 3, Isaiah 41, 2, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, all speak of the Messiah as being one that is filled and living by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it important for us to have this theology lesson? Why does it make a difference in our daily experience? Why have we taken some extra time to show that his temptations and sufferings were real and that he resisted them by the power of the Holy Spirit? Here's why. It's because in doing so, walking through this together, we see that Christ became for us a truly helpful high priest. Truly helpful a helpful advocate, a helpful savior. So that's number three, finally this morning, a helpful experience. It's a helpful, because our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ became a man and in his sinless manhood, he helped us as human beings. I want to show you some verses in the letter of Hebrews that make this connection for us between the humanity of Christ, the real humanity of Christ, and His being powerfully able to help us in our weaknesses, in our sins, in our suffering. And I want to encourage each of you to mark these passages down. We're just going to touch them. You could take each one of these four passages I want to give to you and, and obviously preach a whole sermon on it. I want to encourage you to mark them down and meditate on them in the days ahead, especially when you are feeling your human weaknesses. Before we look at these passages in Hebrews, I just want to give you a taste of the historic context of Hebrews. This is important for you. So the book of Hebrews, letter of Hebrews, was written to a Hebrew congregation, a group of people who had just newly become Christians. They had just come out of the old ways of Judaism. And with their conversion... They had begun as a people to experience intense persecution. Just think of it. Those religious leaders and the communities that had once embraced them were now what? Hostile toward them. They had abandoned the faith in their perspective and begun to follow Christ. And in the face of this hostility, These young believers, these new believers, were thinking about going back to Judaism. Why? I want done with the danger of this. I want to be done with the cost of following Christ. 
I'm so tired of being poor and kicked out of the community and nobody will buy my goods in the marketplace and so on and so on. I don't want the pain anymore. The pressure is too great to follow Christ. They began to ask the question, was it worth following Christ? Is it, is it worth enduring the suffering? Is it worth resisting the temptation? And so the writer of Hebrews appeals to his readers not to abandon their confession. Don't apostatize. Don't go back. Don't abandon the church. Don't abandon the cost. Don't abandon Christ because he's far superior to angels. He's far superior to Moses. He's far superior to the Old Testament Jewish priesthood, the whole Old Testament system. And if you abandon Christ, there remains no other atonement for you outside of Christ. These are the things that the writer of Hebrews appealed to his people with. But if they remained faithful, in spite of the pressure, they would inherit the fulfillment and the blessing of every one of his promises. So then the writer of Hebrews teaches his people in the pain, in the pressure, in the poverty of suffering and temptation as a Christian. The answer is never to go back to the old ways. The answer is never to go, go, to, go to back away from Christ and his church, but to run to the throne of grace where you will find the man, Christ Jesus Whoever lives to intercede for you, who will be with you, who will have a sympathetic and powerful hand to help you in your need at just the right time. The perfect manhood of Christ and the powerful divinity of Christ are available to you in the person of our Savior to give you uniquely sympathetic and powerful help in your need at just the right time. When you're suffering, when you're tempted, when you're weak, this is the glory of Christ and His incarnation. And this is true for you, dear ones. Look at this verse. Hebrews 2, 14-18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, what does it say? He Himself Likewise, partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. He doesn't help angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be what? Made like his brothers in every respect. Do you you see this? Christ the Son becoming human in every respect. Taking the same things, the flesh and blood on. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because, look at that. Because... He himself has suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted so much. But just just to touch on it for just a moment, because he himself was tempted, because 
He took on flesh and blood because He is made like you and me in every respect except for sin. He can help us in our temptations. He's done them all. He, he makes propitiation for us in our failures. Do you ever get sick of failing, failing to fall into temptation? You're just so, why do I keep sinning like this over and over and over again? He makes propitiation for you. He appeases God's wrath in your behalf. He's merciful. This, this is part of the result of him becoming human and, and experiencing everything that we have without sin. He's merciful. What does that mean? He doesn't give you what you deserve. He lifts you up from your weakness and gives you what you don't deserve. He gives you grace and He's faithful. He's trustworthy in that. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to to cry and bleed in the darkness. He knows all about it. And He's faithful. He's reliable. He's promise-keeping. He's dependable. He's helpful. He brings true aid to you in your weakness. He experienced what is needed. Listen to this. He he has experienced what is needed to flawlessly endure every temptation from Satan. And he gives you the wisdom and resources that he depended on. His spirit, his word, and access in prayer. He helps us. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation, also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What's the way of escape? The man Christ Jesus is the way of escape. Consider this other passage. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. He's talking about the Old Testament priesthood. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. But also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he said also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look, look at this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, he truly helps us not only in our temptations, but also in our suffering. He, again, he knows what it's like as a man to cry and shed tears under the cost and agony of God's good, loving, sovereign will. Do you know this is a reference to Gethsemane? Loud cries and tears. Jesus knows what this is like to the deepest degree. He knows what it's like to trust in our Father 
to the point of suffering and death. He knows what it's like to learn obedience, though without failure, to the heavier and heavier weights of testing and trial and suffering that God ordains for His sons and daughters. He completed all the suffering that God ordained for Him. And now He is the source of eternal salvation to all who trust in Him to obey His Word. He who shed tears and great drops of blood will help you in your darkest moments. That's the idea. For those who are His, He is our Savior. He's able to help us in our suffering. He can help us because He has been there and carried through perfectly. Think of this text again. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus made it through all, right? He made it through all. He, he, he went through the veil into the, into the temple of God and, and brings us into the presence of God as well. He passed all the tests, and so we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So then, what's the invitation? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is truly sympathetic, right? He knows what it is to feel what we feel in our weaknesses. He's been affected by the same weaknesses. And he's compassionate, understanding, and helpful. He was truly tempted. He truly suffered and felt it all without sin. And he's ready to give you mercy just at the right time. He's ready to give you grace at a well-timed moment. He is ready to show you his example and share his power with you through the Holy Spirit so that you may overcome temptation and endure suffering as he did. Think about it this way a fellow brother and sister in Christ that you know has lived many years before you and has walked down the path that you're going down, they've walked down it well because of Christ. And you're just beginning a path, whatever it is. And you think, man, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to get through this well. I'm struggling. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to pray for. And you go to that dear brother and sister in Christ and they they put their arm around you and they draw you close and they say, I know exactly what you're going through. I've been there. And here's how the Lord brought me through it. And they give you truth and strength through the Spirit of God. They minister to you. you Have you had those experiences? Think how much more Christ That's why his manhood is so important to us. He has walked every road ahead of you. He knows all of it. From suffering to temptation, not sin, but every human experience. Go to him. Go before his throne of grace and you will find there because he became man, a a God-man who is praying for you and you will find mercy and grace to help at just the right time. That's the glory of his humanity. Jesus won't forget what it's like to be like us. 
Because you know what? He still is a man. And he will eternally be a man. And we'll talk more about this next week. But what is the duration of his manhood and priesthood to help us? How long? How long will he help us like this? Forever. Look, this makes Jesus a guarantee of a better covenant. Why is Jesus so much better than the old way? The former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he, what? Continues forever. Consequently, this God-man interceding for you with sympathy and power continues in that role for you forever. And so he is able to do what? He is able to save you to the uttermost. He will give you help. He will not abandon any one of his children, any one of his chosen. He will bring about your salvation completely. He will. That's what it says. All those who, what? Draw near to God through him. That's a great description of a child of God. All those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have a sympathetic, we have a perfect Savior mediator. He is powerful. He is permanent. He is faithful. He is able to completely save. He will ultimately deliver us from every sin, suffering, temptation, and weakness. Go before the throne of grace, dear ones. And you will find the God-man ready to give you powerful help. Let your understanding of Christ's humanity lead you to worship Him by your trust, your love, your obedience, and your praise. Trust Him, adore Him, follow Him, give Him glory. Before I pray, let me ask you, have you come to this Christ yet? In salvation? Have you come? Are you His? Have you forsaken all other ways of getting to the Father? To gain forgiveness? Do you have God's forgiveness through Christ? Do you know that you have eternal life with God? You see, dear ones, He is the only way that you can be declared good to stand before God according to God's standards. We'll talk more about this on Thursday or Friday. You need his righteousness, his sinless human righteousness. How else are you going to stand before God? Your righteousness and mine won't cut it. His will. He's the only way you can be rid of your guilt and punishment for sin that, that God will be satisfied with. That's what he did on the cross. God takes the sin of all those who trust in him and he transfers it to the son and he punished his son in a human body right on the cross. That's what Christ has done. He, he is the only way you can be raised to spiritual life and given eternal physical life someday to live with him forever. Jesus is the only way you can have that happen. You can't do that for yourself. Are you trusting in him? He's the only way that you can be guarded and kept in God's love. Jesus, this ever-living God-man interceding for you, he's the only one who can keep you and cause you to persevere in faith. And he's the only one that can bring you 
before the Father someday when you die or He returns. So I ask you, because, because what I said is absolutely true by Scripture, have you begun to turn away from your sin to Christ? Have you begun to turn away from your self-efforts, trying to, to please God to Christ? Have you begun? Let me ask it this way. Have you begun to turn away from your own apathy and love for the world to pursue knowing God and trusting in Him? In Christ alone. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. This is good and well-pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. What? The man, Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all which is testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy 2, 3-6. through would you trust in Christ today if you have not already? And if you'd like to know more from God's word about what this means, please talk with me. I'd love to connect you with someone or show you from God's word how this Christ can be your Savior. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for this glorious truth that the Son, the eternal Son, became man and therefore the God-man. And because of that, oh, he gives us help in our suffering, in our temptation, with our sin, and brings us to completed salvation when we see him face to face. Thank you. May we rest in him and rejoice in him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.